From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hello. Hello. Okay, so I... I'm going to jump right in. I have a set of questions here. I'm not going to start with them. I'm going to start with a... Uh, that's a teaser. <laughs> right. In the biz, that's what you call a teaser. Yeah. Um, this is actually, we can think of it as a bonus question, but it's it's a difficult question. I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with it just this morning. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 30,000-foot view of why his name is known in the church is because he was a pastor, uh, during world war two. And, um, he was executed by Hitler's regime and he had the opportunity to go to America to escape and to teach and to live a normal life. He did not take that opportunity. He decided to stay home and try to help his people and help preserve the good where he was, and he paid for that with his life. He was executed. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was taken away mid-sermon um, by the SS, and he was hung from the gallows. I've preached sermons where people wanted me to be taken <laughs> away mid-sermon, probably. Um, and so so I, I, I pull his example to lay the groundwork um, of how books have been written about this man and his integrity because of this kind of act. Now, the reason why I'm struggling with this is because, um, so Bonhoeffer sacrificed it all. He's not the only one who sacrificed it all for his faith. Um, there's been a couple others, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, we applaud people who sacrifice it all. Now, where things start to get tricky is if you decide to sacrifice it all on like a daily basis. And so think of a pastor who works a hundred hours a week in his, his effort to um, advance the kingdom of God through his ministry. And so he's sacrificing his family. He's sacrificing um, all of the other areas where he might live a well-balanced and good life. And when we see that happen, we think that there are problems. And so can you help me delineate between where the voluntary sacrifice, because remember Bonhoeffer, at least in my reading, had a choice here. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sure there's many others who had a choice who became martyrs. We know there's a choice to be made and we know there's a choice to be made in the case of the hundred hour pastor why is it that we sounds like a book <laughs> the hundred hour pastor um, uh, all kinds of jokes right oh, there man. i don't want to derail but go, go ahead go ahead go um, keep, continue why is it that we applaud one and we look sideways at the other and what are what are the differences that i'm missing here that are making this more difficult in my mind than maybe it needs to be man so I would say that there are times that it is difficult to suss out which is which. They can look very similar on the surface. 
Now, in the case of the the pastor who's sacrificing his family and sacrificing other things to, you know, as you put it, advance the kingdom of God. I don't think that pastors that are doing that are sacrifice. They're. I don't think they're sacrificing. I don't think they're they're sacrificing at all. Yeah. I think that. Um, the motivation there often, unfortunately, is selfish. Uh, it's it's about wanting to gain glory for themselves, wanting to prove something. There's you know, um, what living out of a sense of of legalism, honestly, that says if I don't accomplish all these things, then God won't be pleased with me. I mean, there's 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 a whole lot of other things to unpack there, but I would say more often than not. That kind of um, work-life balance, if you will, on the part of a pastor is is motivated more out of selfish ambition than it is a, a true desire to lay their life down in service to the Lord and to other people. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that's well said. Um, and I think it comes back to calling um, because <clears throat> as a as a pastor with a family and we have to understand what our calling is and what it's not. And we have to understand the, the, the length of our calling as well. And I would probably make a case that Bonhoeffer was called to do what he did, yeah. that God invited him into doing that. And I don't, I, I don't see God inviting pastors into, um, burnout and into, um, broken marriages or dysfunctional homes. Right. Um, and that's what, that's what is birthed out of working hundred hour work weeks regularly. And you know, that's, that's what happens. And I think there are seasons where we work longer hours and we're busier and all those kind of things. That's ministry. That's life. Every job is like that to some degree or another. Um, but I think if we, if we filter some of our decisions through, is this something God is asking me to do? Or is this something that I'm doing? Like Todd said, for my own vain glory or for, so people will like me more so that I can have a bigger church or so I can, you know, any of those kind of things. And we can veil that in, in good. Um, because yeah, it's a good thing to have a bigger, more influential church or to have, you know, help more people or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But is that what God's asking me to do? And I think if if we filter some of our decisions through that question, it, it helps clarify some of it. So is it possible, is it ever possible to want to be the best at a thing from good motivations? Sure. And, and, and I'm using that language very carefully. You want to be the best at a thing. And can you do that from good motivations? I think that you can. Uh, you know, like... Uh, and and I, an example that comes to mind for me is Phil Keggy. I don't know, you know, Phil Keggy's a guitar player um, and um, musician, incredibly gifted. Uh, and one of the things that I heard him say one time was, I he said I want to, he said I practice my instrument so that when the spirit of God moves, I am not a um, a barrier and I'm paraphrasing but I am not a barrier to what the Lord's wanting to do right I so his his desire was I want to be the the very best that I can be at my instrument at my craft mm-hmm. so that whenever the you know whenever the spirit of God moves I am not a barrier to that I want to be a conduit that can you know and so I think that there is a a, 
a, a way in which we can, you know, say, I want to be the very best at, at what I do or among the very best at what I do and not have that come from a sense of, of vainglory where it's like, I, I want to be praised. I want to be lauded. I want to be applauded. But rather, you know, we want God to receive glory from the things that we do. Uh, and I, I mean, I really, and again, sometimes that can look very similar on the mm-hmm. surface. The things yeah. that the Pharisees were doing appeared righteous, yeah. right? But it was it was their heart that made all of the difference. And And I think one of the ways that we can measure that is, how much of my identity is wrapped up in that thing? And would I uh, descend into despair were that thing taken away from me? Yeah, so for pastors, the the package of being a good instrument for God includes mm-hmm. the heart and includes um, the family and those things yeah. that are around him. Well, and you said instrument. I was thinking of it this way and and again i would echo what todd said but i i think the key is being useful like i want to be as useful for god's purposes as i possibly can be so you know todd used the example of a musician but for a preacher um my ability is limited to some degree by my knowledge mm-hmm. and my walk with christ so the more intimately i walk with christ and the more i know his word the more it's in me the easier it is for it to come out of me um and and um, so going back to the tool reference, that like it being a useful tool, it's, um, you know, I'm working on my Jeep. Um, I can get tools from Harbor Freight. Um, yeah. They are cheap. And that is what I like about Harbor Freight tools. Right. The bad news is I might only use them one time before they break or give <laughs> me an issue. Um, and so I want the best tool I can get. Yeah. Um, and that be- the best tool is going to be the most useful for me. And so, again, I think it comes back to our motivation. It comes back to our heart and saying, why do I want to be the best? Do I want to be the best so that I can get glory and so people will think I'm awesome? And so I can, you know, um, carry this esteem and this, you know, whatever it might be. Or am I just am I just interested in being a useful tool for God's glory? Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think, I don't think it's always one way or the other. I think we have to battle our own intentions. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's, we stay in that lane, but we're constantly kind of drifting in the lane and we've got to guard our own hearts and Hey, why am I mean, and I've talked to our staff. I've had, sometimes I have to filter even things I'm saying in a sermon. If I'm going through a sermon, like, okay, this is, this is good. And it may be helpful, but why am I saying it? Am I saying it because it makes me look good, or am I saying it because it helps move the message forward and connect it to be- people better? Yeah. And if and if if there's any part of me that's like, oh, this really just the people will be impressed with me because I say this, then I usually will get rid of it, even if I think it might be helpful. If if my motivation is I'll look better, then I'm like, nope, it's not worth it for me. Yeah. So. Yeah, so monitoring the condition of the heart is an ongoing vigilance, especially so if you're if you aim at being the best at something and you see some progress and success at that, is it true that you attract other people who are also aiming at that and maybe aiming at it from bad motives and then when those people start to end up in your orbit, then it's like they can have some influence over you, they can, you know, they can show you, "Oh, you know, I'm step for step with you and I'm selfishly oriented and so then you can start to see like oh is there like a temptation wrapped up in that 
I suppose there could be. Um, my knee-jerk reaction, though, would be to say, I don't need any help being selfish. I can do that all by myself, you know? I'm, I'm pretty good at that, yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, it's don't need a, any practice, you know, and so it really is. It's an ongoing surrender to the Lordship of Christ uh, and asking the Lord to, you know, search my heart, you know, search me and know me, see if there be any wicked way in me. You know, it's that kind of thing where it's like I've I've got to consistently surrender my desire for credit or glory or whatever to at the feet of Jesus and say, God, you know, Kill my pride. Yeah. Kill my pride. I think, I mean, honestly, I think pride is the root of every sin. Yeah. And so it, we, I mean, it's, we got to come back to that always and often, uh, or we will find ourselves drifting. Well, um, I think it's easy for us to preach things at, like, uh, hey, confession and repentance is necessary as a daily part of our life. It's a daily discipline. And it's easy for ministers to say things like that, but not practice that. But I think it's maybe more important for ministers to practice it than even for lay people in the congregation because we are prone, we are so prone to pride and arrogance because we have people go, oh, pastor, I, I, I'm growing to my faith because of you. Yeah. And well, it's not really because of me, but it's easy for us to hear that and go, well, it is. And, and if we're not careful... Um, we do get really prideful and that's why it's so important for us to keep an eye on that every day yeah. and for us to have people who can say no to us and that can say, eh, I don't know if that's really, are you, you said this in your sermon, is that really biblically accurate? And if we don't have people like that, then we are more likely to get ourselves into trouble. Yeah. I mean, and the reality is, look, I mean, we live a lot of our lives on a platform. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are perils and there are dangers that are associated with that. And I mean, just a, a quick look around the, the, the church world can tell you that that can end very, very badly mm -hmm. if if that thing is not surrendered and submitted to God. Yeah, our friend Gerald Brooks, friend of Back 40, um, Dr. Gerald Brooks, um, he would he talks a great deal about platforms and giving people a platforms too soon before their character can support it and things like that. Um, one of the things he talks about though that has always stuck with me through the years, he said, um, people don't lose a platform because they're bad at the platform. They lose a platform because they're bad at life. So mm. like their personal life off the platform is a mess. And that's what robs them of their platform. And so, but again, we focus on the platform because that's where we get the esteem and that's where we get the, you know, yeah, all the accolades and all the affirmation and all those kind of things. Um, but, but it really does come back to our heart. It comes back to our character and, it, you know, those are the things that support the, the public giftings that God gives us. Yeah. I think it was Christine Kane who I heard say, you know, if the light that is on you is brighter than the light that's within you, it will destroy you. Yeah. 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 yeah and this, all of this seems especially true. Um, for pastors who work a lot. And I think it's, I think they're in more danger of it uh, because say you work like 60 hours a week and you're always thinking about how you can um, sharpen your craft and mm -hmm. grow your church and all these things. Um, you put a lot of thought into your sermons and then the guy down the street only works on Sundays and you're, you're seeing growth and he's not. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say, oh, well, that's because I'm working a lot harder yeah. than he is. And it feels like there's some truth to that. Um, well, because but, there is. Yeah. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we are called to be faithful mm-hmm. stewards of the gift that's got, gifts that God has given us, right. right? And it was the it was the servants who went out and multiplied the talents that the Father had placed in their hands who were rewarded and who the who the master said well done good and faithful servant so so yes there is a direct correlation between those things the problem is when we begin to take credit for it that's where the problem lies like when i start to believe my own press then i mean i mean that's bad news man it's a it's a bad bad thing yeah so you should view your work ethic as itself as a gift from God in that way. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I, I'm not pointing to myself like I have a great work ethic, but um, I'm saying that the the um, the metaphorical I, let's say, uh, have great work ethic. I need to remember that that work ethic is a gift from God and that if the guy down the street doesn't have that it's you know maybe he's neglecting what he his, his maybe he's not as faithful and he's neglecting his work um but the fact that i'm not is because of god's gift to me yeah yeah i, I think there's a lot of truth in that and i would take it a step further and say if the guy down the street doesn't seem to be working the same way i do maybe it's cuz he's lazy and wicked going back to todd's you know scripture reference or maybe it's because he's in a season where he's got stuff going on at home that I don't see, or there are yeah. things happening in the church, or you know what I mean? There, there are lots of things that can mitigate that and cause somebody, from my perspective, to seem lazy and wicked when in fact they're not. And it's not my job to judge them. It's God's job to judge them. So it's my job to encourage and bless and right. love. And so we've got lots of people in our community that are smaller churches that um, their church isn't growing. But I don't, I, I try to guard my heart and do my best not to go, well, we're better than them because I, I don't know what's going on in their situation. Yeah. So it's not my job to judge them. It's my job to encourage them and bless them and love them and partner with them if they want to be partners. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, I think living in comparison always, well, I mean, I suppose there is a kind of a healthy sense of comparison in some ways. I don't want to discount it completely. But when we live in that way, what can happen oftentimes is, so let's say I'm the servant who who got 10 talents, right? I If I'm living a life of comparison, then I what I will end up with is pride, right? Oh, look, I got 10 talents and that guy didn't get in, you know, whatever the other the flip side of that is well if i'm if i'm the guy who maybe isn't as gifted as that guy down the road um and i'm living my life in comparison you know then then i can end up in despair or i can end up you know and so like it's never a good idea for us to live in comparison to other people uh what we have to do is do our very best to you know, say, Lord, am I being faithful to what you've called me to? Am I being faithful with the gifts that you have given me? Now, that doesn't mean that I can't look at what other people are doing and learn and glean from it. But if that becomes my measure of whether or not I'm being faithful, then I'm already looking at the wrong thing. So we should err on the side of mercy when evaluating a person's first of all we should be cautious about evaluating a person's performance and a person's character and these sorts of things like we need to try to do our due diligence mm-hmm. before even getting to that step but once yeah. we get to that step we err on the side of mercy which brings me to a question a leadership question 
what would you say is the role of mercy in effective leadership? What are some strategies that you use to measure how much mercy you extend to someone? And how do you demonstrate Christ-like mercy without becoming a pushover? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so from, a, from an employer perspective, um, I've, I will err on the side of mercy in terms of uh, termination or um, even even with even with correction I will I will err on the side of mercy um, and probably to a fault sometimes uh, there have been times that I've probably had employees that should have been out of our organization earlier than they were that I gave them more grace than I should have more mercy. And probably some of that was selfish on my part going, Oh, I don't want to have to deal with this. Um, and so I don't know if that's actually mercy now that I define it that way. But, uh, I think, I think there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a balance there. And it's, um, I don't think there's a a hard and fast rule. I think it's gotta be case by case to some degree because every person is different. There's some things that are black and white. There are some things our staff knows, hey, you're going to get terminated if you do this, you know? Um, and so like one of our, one of our um, kind of unwritten rules here is uh, confess sin can be restored. Um, discovered sin is going to be punished. And um, not that there aren't consequences for confess sin, but confess sin is different than discovered sin in our opinion. And so it's easier to extend mercy in those places than it is when somebody is actively working to hide sin from you. And so like, that's something we kind of live by, but I think it's case by case. And I think people are different and their hearts are different. And so sometimes it's easier to extend some mercy than it is in other cases, because sometimes people are being subversive and they're working against you. And you probably shouldn't extend a lot of mercy in that moment because my responsibility is not just to the individual. It's I've got a greater responsibility to the organization. And so I can extend a lot of mercy to a person, but it might be counterproductive for the organization for me to do that. And so that's where I probably need to extend less mercy. But then you've got people that they just need to be corrected and they're not hurting the organization. So we go, okay, we're going to, we're going to extend mercy or we're going to extend mercy. We're going to extend mercy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Like my greatest fear with mercy um, is when I read in the scripture and I, I read that the, the same amount of mercy that I extend will be extended to me. And so that's where I'm like, I'm, I always tend to err on the side of mercy. And yeah. it, I do mean err. Like I, I think I make mistakes in uh, evaluation because of my tendency to lean towards mercy. And I think we see, um, I, we've seen the chaos wash across our culture that started in the name of mercy. Now we're mm-hmm. not even prosecuting people for breaking the law, um, ostensibly <laughs> because of mercy. Um, but so, so, so all mercy all the time can't be the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's kind of figuring out where where to be strong and where not to be strong, I think is tricky. Well, and sometimes Sometimes. we hide behind mercy. Like I mentioned at the beginning was because I don't want to, I don't want to correct or I don't want to, I don't want to be the bad guy or want them to like me or they're just a volunteer. So I can't correct them. And we hide behind mercy as a godly trait, but Jesus, Jesus never, I mean, he was harsh to religious people and he was gentle to lost people. 
And so when you look at his interactions with, with pagans, with lost people, he extended a high level of mercy, but he also did not shy away from speaking the truth to who they were. Like, hey, here's yeah. your current condition. Here's where you're currently at. You don't have to be that way anymore. Go and sin no more, right? So he would say, this is where you're at, but his mercy um, was, it wasn't absent in the truth. It was paired with the truth. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so an iron law of mercy is it never, ever twists the truth. Like it, yeah. it never, it never causes you to sanitize the truth yeah. or to change it in order to accommodate. Yeah. You know, so I'm going to speak truth to you, but I'm going to do it with a high level of mercy. Uh, and we think mercy is, well, I'm not going to speak the truth to them or I'm going to give them 80% of the truth or, um, but I think you could, the best thing we can do for them is, for them to see what mercy really is, they have to know what their current condition really is. And so I think it's important for us not to shy away from those hard conversations just f- f- veiled as mercy. Well, we're just going to extend mercy to them, but we're never even going to tell them that they need to be corrected or that there was an issue or there was a problem or, hey, we need to – we yeah. just go, oh, I'm going to extend mercy and I'm not going to have a hard conversation with them. And it's really more about us than it is about them. Yeah, so mercy is found in the buffer between the principle that the biblical principle that you teach and the individual that you're teaching it to. So the reason why I think that mercy captures so many people in a bad way in Western society is because they see all of these people who are living in sin and developing communities based on such sin, and they see millions of people and they don't want to just condemn them. And so they say they 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 jump to, well, does the Bible really mean mm-hmm. this when it says this? Yeah. Um, and because they're looking at the people, but mm-hmm. the mercy should be in that space between the people and the principle. So you can yep. live with authoritarian certainty on the principle, but that doesn't mean you have to extend authoritarian certainty to the individuals that you're teaching mm-hmm. that principle to. Yeah. And so figuring out that buffer is where that, that mercy mm-hmm. kind of unfolds. Yeah. And well, and I think too, that we seem to be maybe operating under the principle that correction isn't a merciful act. And I think that it can be. Yeah. Um, And when done rightly, it, it is, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it depends on whether or not our motivation is punitive or corrective. Mm -hmm. Right. If my, if my heart and my desire is to bring correction and to bring restoration to somebody, then correction itself is an act of mercy. If my desire is to be punitive, to punish, to hurt someone in response to something that I didn't like, that's a whole other ballgame, right? And so I think I think that has to be one of the things that we're measuring when we when we look at what's merciful and what's not as well. Because it's certainly not a merciful act. Uh, one of the worst things that the scripture says God can do to us is is to re- to remove restraint right. and leave us to our own devices. The correction of God is mercy because it is saving us from destruction, right? And so, if we follow the example of of you know the, the God's mm-hmm. example, if we follow a Christ like example in that regard, we will bring correction, but it will always be for that reason, to bring correction and restoration rather than to be a punitive act. Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, Mel, in one of your sermons recently, you mentioned how disrespecting a man in front of other people can cause deep and lasting damage to the relationship with that man. Mm -hmm. Knowing this, how do you recommend young leaders conduct themselves around superiors? And what are some ways that a young pastor can build his own respect in the church leadership community? 
a young leader can carry themselves with um, like superiors. Is that what you said? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, like you have, imagine you have a young leader who wants to make his bones in the past in the pastoral community. Right. Right. Um, and so he surrounds himself with people who are his superiors. Uh-huh. How should he act around those people um, without th- losing his own set, like while yeah. also building his own respect? I think um, you default to honor. Yeah. Um, uh, the biggest mistake I've seen with young leaders around more seasoned leaders, not even people that were necessarily their bosses or they're above them on the flow chart, but the biggest mistake I've seen is the assumption that they are peers. So the younger leader will assume that, that they are peers. And I've got people that I esteem in my life that would call us peers that I would not say we are peers because, um, because I look at them differently. And I think that gives me credibility with them because I will default to honor instead of going, oh yeah, I'm their peer, I'm their equal. Um, and I think we can earn that, but but showing up and thinking we deserve it because, oh, we're peers, you know, we're the economy of heaven, we're all equals. And there's truth to that, but I think understanding Hey, there are people that have earned respect because their longevity in ministry, because of the position they hold, the seat they're in, whatever it is. I think uh, young leaders would be much better off defaulting to honor instead of assuming that they're equals or peers. Um, and if the person above me wants to do that, that's one thing. But I can't do that. Um, I, I'm, I was telling Todd last night we're gonna I'm gonna be at a gathering this week with. Um, like 80 other pastors from throughout the state of Pennsylvania, LCBC. Some of our friends are hosting a gathering. It's um, they invited the hundred the, the pastors from the hundred biggest churches in the state of Pennsylvania, and the, their goal is to figure out how can we effectively um, reach the state of Pennsylvania and these churches, working with other churches, and you know things like that. Um, and even at a gathering like that, one of the worst things I can do is show up thinking I deserve to be here. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, do you guys know who I am? But that's the approach a lot of young leaders take when they walk into a room with seasoned leaders. And so even with a room like that, we, I'm, you know, I want to walk in humbly. I want to walk in extending honor. I want to walk in being respectful. And that's I'm 46 years old. I pastor a good church and, all those things, but I don't want to assume anything. Mm-hmm. But again, that's the posture a lot of young leaders take, if and, that makes sense. Yeah, and most of the leaders, probably even at that gathering, even if they are in the upper echelons of mm-hmm. pastoral ministry, will probably be coming in with that mindset, mm-hmm. you know, because that's part and parcel of how they got there, mm-hmm. you know, as they, they were carrying that, yeah. that sense of humility. Okay, so what, what then would you say is, if you had to narrow it down to one or maybe a handful of things, what is the currency of ascending the oh gosh there's there's so many dangerous ways to say <laughs> <Yeah>. this um <laughs> what is the currency for garnering respect in the pastoral community at least as far as you understand it like because well, it can't be skill right it can't just be skill. Well, no i mean i think i think mel hit the nail on the head it's honor mm-hmm. you know i think uh well our friend sam masteller says honor up honor down all honor all around mm-hmm. right and so yeah. i think when you honor people uh that goes a long, long way, man. I mean, when you, you, the scripture tells us to esteem others as more important than yourself, right? If we, if we truly live in that way, 
uh it's very attractive man mm-hmm. like it people want to be around people who honor well mm-hmm. and i think that is massive right it's i mean i, I wouldn't say it's the only thing but it is first on my list probably mm-hmm. yeah and and, and- Michael, you said it can't just be skill, and you're exactly right because I've been around some talented communicators that I don't want to spend any time with. Um, I've been around some people that technically are fantastic leaders. Uh, They can lead an organization like a general would lead an army, but they're not necessarily people I want to spend time with or be around because it comes back to what you were saying, Todd. I mean, there's an element of honor that is embedded in who we are as Christians. That's part of our core. That's part of what God has called us to. And, and really, you know, I think about like, um, like Judah Thomas is part of back 40 and pastors, a great church here in our community. And it's not the biggest church around, but it's a really good church and they're growing and doing good things. And Judah is so caring and so loving yeah. and so honoring mm-hmm. and such a good pastor that if you said, Mel, would you like to hang out with this pastor of a church of 5,000 or Judah, if we're getting lunch, um, I'd probably pick Judah. And it has nothing to do with the what's being produced. And this is not a video podcast, so you can't see my air quotes. But it's not about what we're producing, but it's about his character and it's about who he is. And and so as far as like moving up the scale or at, at, you know um, being respected by other people, um, the people that really matter are not impressed by big, by how many people show up to your church on a Sunday morning. The people that really matter are impressed with your character. And, and so, um, years ago I was working in my last church and I was the campus pastor and it was, it was a very large church and we got invited to go to a, um, uh, a gathering of some like-minded churches and we were about to walk in the door and my pastor and I were not close but he looked at me and he said, don't be intimidated. You belong in this room. You're just as called as every one of them is. And it was like, whoa, this light bulb went on in my head. Like, that's right. My calling is valid. Um, but it was a, largely a room full of people that I would not have wanted to hang out with because they were impressed with how many people showed up on a Sunday morning. And and those people tend to gather together. Um, and their club is very small. <laughs> Um, and the rooms that I'm more comfortable in are the people that they don't really care how many people show up on a Sunday morning. They're more interested in your heart. And so the rooms that we find acceptance in says something about our heart too. And, uh, the rooms that we're trying to get into and the groups of people we're trying to be accepted by says something about that too. There's nothing wrong with having a big church. Um, and I, I I might've said this in our conversations before, but I've known rich people and I'm not in impressed with rich people. I'm impressed with rich people who don't act like rich people. Um, I know lots of big church pastors and I'm not impressed with big church pastors. I'm impressed when you don't act like a big church pastor. Um, and so, so I think at the end of the day, it really does come back to our heart and our character and being willing to honor and regardless of some of the things that, you know, we get impressed by measuring how many people show up or, you know, how big is your building or how many locations do you have or whatever it might be. Yeah. I I like the, what you said about there's nothing wrong with having a big church and I'm going to try to formulate this into a question. This will be the last question for this episode, but, um, okay. So one of the things that I've found in my own exploration of calling is 
when like there's there's a certain set of names of people who do a very specific thing and and so they've you know I had cast it the other day um, with the idea of thinking in public. And so there's people who have, they've, that's just what they did. They thought in public and that's what they're remembered for thinking in public. Um, and I think that there are, there's some things about that that are distinct from pastoral ministry. Um, now I'm not even going to say the names um, because if I did, I, I feel like there's no way to communicate that without like sounding just like, uh, like I've gone insane with ego. And so, um, <laughs> we were already thinking that Michael, honestly. I've been meaning but, to talk to you, but. but, but so, so the thing that I'm, I feel better when I tell myself, oh, I can do that. I can mm-hmm. do that. If I really try, yeah. if I really try, I can do that. And some point along their young lives, they said to themselves, I can do that. And then they went and got it. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels good to mm-hmm. do and that feels motivating and it feels like it unlocks future potentials and mm-hmm. these kinds of things but it sounds so arrogant and wrong and so what i'm trying to get to is when you said it's it's okay to have a big church um there's there's got to be this is where formulating the question is going to be difficult so i might need help um how do you aim as high as you do without without convoluting the entire project with pride and arrogance and, and maybe it circles back to what we talked about at the beginning but it's there, there's something that is causing you to say it's okay to have a big church and yeah. i want to know what that is um well every every pastor of every church in america no matter how big or small has an ego every single one that's why we like to hear people say, I liked your message today, pastor. It was so good. Um, so, cause we have an ego. Yeah. Um, and the problem isn't that we have an ego. The problem is when our ego is what drives us and what motivates us and what, uh, what we become beholden to when our ego is, um, subservient to, to God's calling, to his purposes, to those things, um, to serving and blessing and helping people, then it, it's the equation works out. But the problem is when, um, when my ego has to have a big church, so I'm going to work like crazy and I'm going to do everything I have to do in order to get a big church. Um, that's why I said it's okay to have a big church because I leave the results up to God. We're going to work as hard as we can. We're going to do what we can. And then God's the one who brings the increase that's biblical. So at the end of the day, I can't take credit for it. All I'm doing is planting seeds. All I'm doing is watering. All I'm doing is, and God is the one who's responsible for this. And if God wants to build the church, great. It's still his church. I don't get to take credit for it. I just happen to be the the um, steward of it currently. Um, does that make sense? Does that answer your question? I think so. Yeah. Like the, the, the big church is the product of the process in yeah. some sense. And, yeah. and who are you yeah. to question the product because the product is in God's hands. Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes back to what's the bedrock of my identity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to get the person wrong, but uh, let's say it was Paul Newman. Uh, I, someone someone like paul newman i heard once say yeah i used to be paul newman right and the 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 idea behind that is there's going to come a point for all of us at which we used to be that person right i used to be the pastor of that church Mm -hmm. i used to be you know like i I talked to my girls you know they were all involved in competitive cheerleading i was like always said always have told them like there's going to come a point at which you're not a cheerleader anymore 
right? You're going to either age out or you're going to get an injury or you're, you know, whatever. Like it, this will end at some point. Mm-hmm. If your sense of who you are is built on that, then, you know, there's, there's a possibility for there to be trouble when that ends, you know? And so if my identity is built on anything other than Christ, uh, it, there's possibility for, for, you know, for disaster really, Mm -hmm. because if that thing is taken away and every other thing can be taken away, if that thing is taken away and that's the thing that I have built who I am on, well then, then, you know, great was the fall of that house, right? Mm -hmm. You built on sand. And so it, it comes back to those things. None of the traffic's like the guys who built the houses, they both, if you look at the scripture, like it, there doesn't appear to be any difference in the two houses other than what they were built on. Right. Right. They both, they might've been identical floor plans. You know what I mean? They could have looked exactly the same from the outside. It was when the storm came that, that you see what's, what's real and what isn't. And so we need to like build our lives on something that's storm proof. Yeah. Those are really good leadership principles and I'm glad that you guys shared them. Um, yeah, we're going to wrap this up. So I, I appreciate all of you for listening in uh, to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. We are going to continue to release sessions from the Back 40 Conference. So look for those to come out on the podcast and we have some breakout sessions as well. Thank you guys for joining us. We will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.